years ago, I read a book story that was an allegory of Old Testament history. Um, and if you read much, you know there's nothing worse than a clumsy allegory. Um, something where every kind of allegorical element is spelled out for you. Like, those are the absolute worst. Animal Farm. Anybody have to read Animal Farm? I understand it's an important book. Terrible allegory. Like, it's all too blunt. Um, and I could lose my classical Christian scholastic membership card for this, but Pilgrim's Progress, terrible allegory. I know that it's supposed to be a great book. Like, some of the names of things, I wrote some down. Um, the Hill Named Difficulty. Doubting Castle, House Beautiful, The Plain Called Ease, like no subtlety whatsoever, right? Well, this one that I'm talking about was a good allegory. Um, you don't know that like it's even allegorical until the author's ready to like tear open the veil and show you what you've been reading all along and it drops like a bomb. Those are like the amazing allegories. Well, I read one. And, uh, and this series was a great one, and I'm not going to give the title of the author because I hate spoilers, but um, you follow the protagonist and you get fully involved in his story, right? And the narrative is engaging and the pace is pretty gripping, um, and you're fully immersed in the story when uh, suddenly this annoying bit character shows up. And he literally comes out of nowhere, no backstory, no relational connections to any of the other players in the series. And although he's kind of cool... Um, he's threatening the narrative flow that the author has established. And so, um, uh, and so immediately I kind of tagged this guy an antagonist because um, he kind of goes against everything you've been reading for a book and a half now. In fact, some of the stuff he says is even kind of blasphemous to the um, ethical environment the author has created. And so this guy is immediately in my mind deemed one of the bad guys. He's, he's messing with the story. Well, as the story plays out, this character, um, who wasn't in the story for long, turns out to be the allegorical representation of Jesus. And he's there to not only save the narrative, but the main character that I was so concerned with. And even though I'm like a, a follower of scripture and I love literature and I read a lot, I completely missed it until it was very, very late in the game. Like, I, I, once I looked back, I should have caught it way earlier than I did. Well, believe it or not, this experience had a profound impact on me um, because for the first time ever I realized that if I had lived in the time of Jesus I might have missed him to be honest as a 21st century evangelical Bible teacher I like to assume that if I would lived when Jesus walked the earth I would have been Peter or maybe I would have doubted like Thomas but I would have at least stayed close enough to be in the room when Jesus puts his wounds on display for my examination but no way would I have been a Pharisee. Like, no way would I have been a temple leader. No way would I have been an average farmer who gets so caught up in his farm and his family and his responsibilities that he might have missed the Messiah. I could never see myself in that role. That maybe I could have missed the Messiah. Well, something about this story made me realize that I was totally capable of getting caught up in the story that I wanted to hear so much that I could miss Jesus when he shows up looking and sounding and acting like he's part of a different story. Well, this year as I dove into the lectionary passages for the Lenten season, I found Jesus consistently acting differently than anyone expected him to. And I was taken back to that revelation of missing him in that book series. And for the first time ever, I found myself having compassion on those who missed him. So this year, for the next five weeks... Leading up to Easter, 
We're going to be looking at uh, some passages where Jesus uh, does some things that were unexpected for a Messiah. Some things, whoops, I missed that. Some things we didn't think the Messiah would do. And so we're calling this series Surprising Savior. Which reminded me of a story that I guarantee you're not going to hear anywhere else. And if you've heard me tell this before, don't give it up. This guy owned a coal mine. And he wanted to increase his production. And so he was hiring new people. And he hires um, three people. He has three people show up on the day of hiring. And he looks at him. He needed that many people. So he hires all three of them. And the first one's this big, strapping, muscle-bound guy. And there was this little kind of nerdy, smart-looking guy. And there was this little kind of hipster Asian. And he looks at him and he says, he looks at the muscle-bound guy. He's like, I need you shoveling coal. You look like you could move some coal. I just want you feeling, filling carts as fast as you can. And so he's shoveling, filling carts. And, uh, and, uh, and he looks at the kind of nerdy guy. And he's like, we need to Im- improve our bookkeeping. I want you at this desk. I need to know everything that comes in, everything that goes out. I need to know everything. Sends him over there. He looks at the kind of hipster Asian. He's like, you know, if we really do improve our production... Um, we're going to need, like, we have to shut down every time we have to resupply. So I need somebody in charge of supplies to just uh, keep everything, everybody, give everybody what they need um, so we can get some more coal. So he leaves for the day, comes back, and the big muscle-bound guy's drenched in sweat, and he has thrown so much coal, the guy can't believe it. It's, coal's moving out of this thing in a hurry. The, the nerdy guy's got spreadsheets on the wall with ch- charts and graphs, and, and everything is laid out perfectly. And the owner looks around and he goes, where's the little hipster? And all of a sudden he jumps out from behind a corner and goes, supplies! Give that a second. (laughs) (laughs) Surprising Savior, pronounce the R. (laughs) Would you do me a favor and stand in reverence as we read the Word of God officially for tonight? Luke 13:1. About this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all other people from Galilee, Jesus asked? Is that why they suffered? Not at all. Oh, I'm not even clicking as we go, am I? Where are we at? Well, there we go. Not at all. And you will perish too, unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. And what about those 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No, and I tell you again that unless you repent, you will perish too. Then Jesus told this story. A man planted a fig tree in a garden and came again and again to see if there were any fruit on it. But he was always disappointed. Finally, he said to his gardener, I've waited three years and there, wasn't, there hasn't been a single fig. Cut it down. It's just taking up space in the garden. The gardener answered, Sir, give it one more chance. Leave it another year and I'll give it special attention and plenty of fertilizer. If we get figs next year, fine. If not, then you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The first time I read this verse... I was still in the King James, and, uh, and it still has my favorite rendition of this exact verse. It says, And he answered unto him, Lord, let it alone this year. 
Till I shall dig about it and dung it. I don't know why that... Till I shall dung it. The New Living that we're working from tonight says give it plenty of fertilizer. But I think the King James gets closer to what we're talking about tonight. So I chose this title for tonight's sermon. Dung the Tree. Now tonight's passage is a weird little kind of pericope that happens in the middle of this teaching that Jesus is giving. And it seems like someone kind of breaks in and tells Jesus about a tragedy that's happened. These people that Pilate has murdered while they were worshiping. And they're waiting for Jesus' response. And this is no small announcement because Jesus' reaction to this news is actually key to a first century Jew. Especially one who might be looking for the Messiah. See, just like how I, a follower of Jesus, can get so wrapped up in the story that I want to hear and be a part of, that I could miss the main character when he shows up in a book, most Jews were already locked into a story that they were pretty sure was going to go exactly as they expected. The Messiah had been prophesied and talked about and hoped for and believed in for so long that most Jews could tell you exactly what to expect. So when a guy shows up doing amazing things and talking about advancing the kingdom of God, and you're even a little bit curious about whether or not he might be the one, this is a perfect litmus test. Tell him about a Roman ruler, a Gentile, a foreign usurper abusing Jews. Because this, if this guy is the Messiah, it should light him up. And the reason of that, for that is that uh, to a Jew, this Messiah talk goes all the way back to Moses. Because if you remember, Moses said this. Oops, shoot, too far. The Lord your God will raise up from you a prophet like me, from among your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Now this is a formative verse in the Jewish understanding of Messiah, especially since they've gone into Babylonian captivity. Because what the Jews are actually looking for is a second exodus. Moses delivered God's people from Egypt, and this Messiah like Moses will come and deliver them from Babylon and then Medo-Persia, and then uh, Greece, and then eventually Rome. So they're looking for a deliverer. They're looking for a Messiah like Moses, one who comes and delivers, who sets God's people free. And if you remember how Moses' story started as a deliverer, he saw an Egyptian abusing an Israelite. And And the passion to deliver burned so bright in him that he committed murder. This is also formative in the Jewish psyche. So if this Jesus sitting on a rock teaching is truly a deliverer like Moses, his reaction to Pilate abusing Jews should give you an indication. Because no good Messiah would leave home without their WWMD bracelet, right? What would Moses do? But seriously, what deliverer could hear about Jews being killed while worshiping and not rise up to save? So this is important news for Jesus to get. But Jesus doesn't take the bait. In fact, he uses this news to launch into one of the shortest but most packed teachings in the Gospels. And we're going to parse out just a little bit of that tonight. So let's start with the text. Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all other people from Galilee? Jesus asked. Is that why they suffered? No, not at all. 
and you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. And what about those 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No. And I tell you again that unless you repent, you will perish too. This is one of my favorite passages because what happens here is that Jesus, they come at Him with expectations. They come at Him kind of expecting a particular response out of Him. This news is loaded and highly political. This is a debate that the nation was already having. And they know exactly what to expect from Jesus. But He won't play ball. And have you ever been like talking to someone and they find out you're a Christian? And you would love for the conversation just to continue as it was before they knew what you believed, but they won't have it. Like, as soon as they find out, probably because of other conversations with Christians they've had, but as soon as they find out you're a Christian, uh, they're like, so do you, are you against gay marriage? Or so do you think dinosaurs and humans lived on the earth at the same time? Or something like, so you think we're in the end times? And you're like, you know what? Those things are so far from from describing my faith that I don't even know if I have an opinion. Like, I always, for some reason, I always fall into these conversations. And what I usually want to say is, when I talk to Jesus, these things are so far down the line from anything I bring up with Jesus that, you know, I've got my hands full just trying to love God and love people. If I ever master that, I might try to go deeper, but right now I've got all I can handle, right? Like, and that's kind of what there was going on here with Jesus. Like, he's teaching and they come along and try to drag him into one of these discussions. They're trying to engage him in a debate that they're already in. It's almost like they're saying, so what are your thoughts on this pilot thing? They're, they're, they're baiting him. They want to they get him engaged in something he wasn't wanting to get engaged in. Should we revolt or were they just sinners? What I love and envy most about what Jesus does here is how easily he kind of sidesteps that question and takes it deeper. Because he doesn't just dodge a question. He doesn't just say no comment. He actually uses it to expose some bad doctrine that they were juggling. They want to talk about the proper kingdom response to a tyrant killing innocent people. And Jesus says, let's talk about everything that's wrong with that question. So he pulls out two bad doctrines. We're going to deal with those individually. The first one is this. Your sins are worse than my sins. See, there's only two proper messianic responses to this situation. There's the mosaic response. There's the let's go kick some Gentile butt response. That's the first one that he could have replied and been an an acceptable Messiah. And then there's the more Pharisaic response that goes something like God defends the righteous and since they weren't defended, they weren't righteous. Flip side of that being, since you weren't killed or crushed, you are righteous. That's the... That's why we like that argument. And Jesus could have given either response and fallen right into acceptable categories for a Messiah. He could have gone either direction. Both are safe. Both have some great verses you can quote to back you up. And the only problem is both are wrong. They both miss something essential to the gospel. And we may be tempted to kind of click our tongues at the crowd and shout amen to Jesus. But if we're honest, we do the same thing. The rumor mill spits out some juicy gossip about that other couple and their marriage not doing well. And we're like, well, you know what? The way he treats her, it's no wonder. 
or somebody else's kids are acting up and we're like, that's why I don't let my kids play video games, right? And what's, what's inferred is when something goes wrong in your life, I'm not saying that there's not consequences for our actions. The things we do do matter. But what's inferred is what goes on in your life is earned. What goes on in my life is an attack from the enemy. Like, like if, if, if you're going through a hard time, it's sin. If I'm going through a hard time, it's injustice. Like, we automatically assume that those people that were hurt deserved it. Because something was off. But me... When I'm hurt, Satan's coming at me. He's attacking me. I love what Jesus does here because he doesn't really say anything about the people who were hurt. If anything, it goes the other way. He doesn't say like, well, sometimes good, bad, you know, bad things happen to good people. In fact, he seems to actually uh, admit that they deserved it. What he does is go, oh, no, no, no. You guys could have been crushed too. You're just as wicked. Like... Like, you guys are, oh my goodness gracious, if it, if it was an issue of sin, you guys would have totally been killed too. That's, he doesn't say anything about them being innocent people. He flips it on, on the crowd. He almost says, you're just as sinful. And I feel like if we could get that reality into our heads, the church would be a completely different place. I feel like if we could understand that we are truly and completely just as sinful and deserving of judgment as anybody who could ever walk through any church door. We would be transformed. I think if our first instinctive reaction to someone else's suffering was, wow, that could totally be me. I am so blessed. Every time we hear even the tiniest bit of of bad news, what if it made us grateful that we have so much? Because we know that we are morally just as deserving of of bad things. No matter how much we get, no matter how much wisdom we use, no matter how disciplined we are, no matter how much we abstain from, no matter how much good we do, in our guts we know that everything we have is completely undeserved. Don't you think that would change the atmosphere of the church? So this first bad doctrine that Jesus exposes is that your sins are worse than my sins. And the second that he draws out seem to be, seems to be the one he's most concerned with. And it's the one I want to spend the most time with tonight. And it simply goes like this. All suffering is due to sin. And this doctrine actually grows out of the first one because if all of us are equally deserving of bad things morally, then on what do I blame bad things? I mean, if, if we're all equal and we're all deserving of bad things, we don't all get all bad things, why don't we all get equal bad things? Now the Messianic answer to this question is yes. The Messiah has came to cleanse. He's a refiner's fire. He's a purifying sword. He's going to destroy the wicked and comfort the righteous. In fact, above all else, to a Jew, the reason the Messiah is coming is to bring justice so that only the wicked perish and the just prosper. Everyone in Israel was tired of the wicked prospering. And so they were looking for the Messiah to come and flip things. And so if he would just get rid of everybody who's sinful, give the suffering to the wicked and give the blessings to the righteous. That's what they're looking for. 
But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he follows up with a story as he so often did. He tells of a tree that wasn't fruitful. It was growing fine. It just wasn't producing. But it was using up the ground that something else could have used. So, in, so the owner is going to destroy it. But in steps the gardener with this incredible and beautiful act of grace and spares the tree. The tree is worthy of destruction, but the gardener won't let it happen. And we all say amen to grace because we love grace. And it's okay to say amen when you're a listener and not the tree. But what happens when you're the tree? From the tree's perspective, things look very different. All the tree knows is it's been growing along just fine. Several years of steady growth, all is good. And then along comes this gardener and starts dragging a saw along one of your branches. Because John 15 tells us that every branch that does not bear good fruit gets cut off. But it took several years to grow that branch. That was one of the tree's favorite branches. And now it's laying on the ground, separated and dead. And then there goes another branch, and another, and another. Where will it end? How many branches can the tree spare and still be called a tree? Finally, it's over. The tree stands sore and naked and unprotected. The best part of itself is burning to ash in a fire. And here comes the gardener with a shovel. And he starts taking away the tree's very sustenance. He tears the dirt right away from the tree. How will the tree feed itself? How will the tree continue to grow? When will this ever end? How does a tree survive this? And to add insult to injury, the gardener comes back and dungs the tree. He literally dumps crap on the base of the tree. And if you know anything about trees, you know why the gardener does what he does. But it's different when you're the tree. Show of hands, who's ever felt pruned? Like life is cutting away all the things you thought you needed. Who's ever felt dug up like the stuff you needed just to survive is being taken away from you? Who's ever felt dunged like life will not stop dumping shovel full after shovel full? Come on. Now, here's the big question. How many of us in the midst of that went, ah, this is grace? Because if you go back to the story, everything that happens to the tree is grace. The gardener steps in to save the tree. The raging pain, the never-ending ache, the echoing loss, the ravenous loneliness. Ah, this is grace. Paul seems to understand this kind of grace. We talk about this verse all the time, it's nothing new. He says, even though I have received such wonderful revelation from God, so to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. 
My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weakness, in the insults, the hardships, the persecutions, the troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. Paul's suffering from a thorn, whatever that is. Experts have speculated, but I think the reason the Holy Spirit was vague about it was because if Paul was struggling with something that we don't struggle with, the second he talked about it, we would have turned it off. If he was like, my vision bothered me, so I prayed, we'd have been like, hey, 2020 here, I don't know what you're talking about, I'm good. We wouldn't have heard the rest, right? If Paul was like, you know, if Paul was confessing a sin, we would have probably judged him. If Paul said, I had this thorn, I couldn't shake it, we'd have been like, yeah, that's that wicked Paul. But I think the Holy Spirit left it vague because Paul's thorn can then become my thorn. And it can become your thorn. Paul didn't want the thorn, but he learned to draw his strength from it. I have no idea how, but Paul learned to stand there, docked, dug up, and dunged. And somehow, he could see grace in it. So Jesus exposes their bad doctrine about sin. Your sin is worse than my sin. and All suffering is due to sin. But the real subtle beauty of this passage is how surprisingly unmessianic it is. This is simply not what a first century Jew would have expected from a long-awaited Messiah. He almost casually brushes off a report of Jews being abused. Then he calls his entire crowd the worst possible sinners. And he tells a story about how grace looks like a tree that's been stripped down, uncovered, and buried in manure. Which brings us to my biggest question for tonight. And this is a question that's burned in my heart since I missed the Jesus character in that allegory years ago. And it's this. If it's possible for a Pharisee who had devoted his life to understanding Scripture, who had devoted his life to obeying the commands, who had devoted his life to training and teaching other people in the ancient ways, and above all else, who had devoted his life to understanding, searching for, hoping for, and ultimately recognizing the Messiah when he steps into the story, don't you think it's at least possible for you and I to miss the Messiah when He's at work in our life. I mean, are we any different than the Jews? I know I'm not. Don't we have things that when they happen, we automatically assume it's God? And other things that when it happens, we automatically assume it's the enemy? Don't we prefer our Messiah to read off of our script? So what happens when he surprises you? What happens when he does stuff that no Savior would do? What happens when deliverance means a saw, a shovel, and some... I had another SH word, but I can't remember what it was. Years ago, I completely thought my marriage was done. My pride had been cut away. My confidence was completely hacked off. The stumps where my discipline and my theology used to hang were oozing sap. My relationship with Esther had been dug up and all my faults were exposed like roots. 
It seemed like every decision I'd made to try to make things better made it worse. Like everything I'd touched turned to dung. And I know you've all heard me say this before, but I praise God every day for that season. I literally live in the fruit of that terrible time. I have a relationship with my wife I didn't even know to dream about back then. And at the time it felt like Satan was having a heyday in my world. Only now can I look back and see that it was the gardener showing me grace. I could have been cut down and burned. I totally deserved that. No doubt. But there he was, cutting away branches that I thought I needed, digging up stuff so he could make room for better stuff. And I don't make light of it. There were days I truly thought we weren't going to make it. It was no laughing matter. It was, it was hell. But it's the reason I now truly have a good marriage. Years ago, I had three people with whom I was so close I couldn't think about myself without the context of them. And they were all three killed at the same time in a car wreck. It was like having my arms cut off. And what made it worse is I suddenly found myself incapable of getting along with the only person left in that family. It was like I was standing there with no branches and here comes the gardener with a shovel. And now I look back at that season and the things that have happened since and I see grace. For years my family would sit at the breakfast table and read the proverb of the day. It was kind of the backbone of our family devotional time. There's 30 proverbs, it's pretty simple, you just read the one that matches the date. And I have the proverbs to read because Solomon wrote them. And Solomon wrote them because he was the king of Israel. And Solomon was the king of Israel because David loved his mother so much that he promised her that her son would inherit the throne. That wife of David's was the woman he got by committing adultery and murdering her husband. So I live in the fruit of that terrible time. Do I think God made David sin? No. Do I think it was good that David sinned? No. Given another opportunity, do I think David would do it again? I really don't. Bathsheba, David and Bathsheba's first child died young and David went through hell over it. He was tormented over the loss of their first kid. I can't imagine he would ever do that again. But I do love reading the Proverbs. I do love eating the fruit from that terrible season. And don't even get me started on Ecclesiastes, favorite book, hands down. So how do we respond to this? I'm going to stick with it. At the end of chapter 13 of Luke, the same chapter where Luke tells us about the dunging of the tree, Jesus climbs up on a hill and He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Your house is therefore left to you desolate. This is the Messiah. This is the Savior. Your house is left unto you desolate. Can you imagine waiting 1,850 years? And that's just if we go back to Abraham. For this Messiah to show up, this Savior to show up, and He finally shows up, and He says... Here I am. Let's get you cut up so I can dump some crap on you. 
This is Lent. This is the season when we talk about hard stuff. The season for docking and digging and dunging. So my hopes for you tonight is this. Do not miss the Messiah. He's easier to miss than you might think. He very well may be at work right in the areas where you're praying for deliverance. He might be the one you're praying for deliverance from. It's what he does. He brings beauty from ashes. He brings fruit from manure. Matthew tells us that Jesus was ministered to by angels, hand-fed by angels, served by angels. What an amazing blessing to imagine. And all he had to do to get there was go through 40 days of lonely wilderness fasting. And it was 40 days that the Holy Spirit led him into. This was not injustice. This was not an attack from the enemy. In fact, the enemy's role in the whole thing seems to be part of the dunging process. But that's deep theological waters for another day. But Lent, we commemorate that wilderness season. So here's the thought I want to leave you with. If Jesus is pruning you, if He's taking away your dirt, if He's dumping wheelbarrow after wheelbarrow of manure into your life right now, it means He's not done with you. The best takeaway from this parable is that if you haven't been cut down, then Jesus sees a future where you are fruitful. I know it hurts. God, I know it hurts. But the fact that there is cutting and digging and dumping happening is a pure evidence that the gardener is not done with you yet. So don't give up. Share what you're going through with somebody in the church. Let us help carry the load with you. Lean into being real this Lent season. But stay. Stay in the garden because He's not done with you yet. You wouldn't still be standing if He was done with you. Everything that happens in Jesus' story is grace. That's how He's saving the tree. If nothing else, stand there pruned and dug up in your nakedness and rejoice that the gardener's not done. The deeper the dung, the more fruit you can expect. Every time you lose another branch, every scoop of dirt that's taken away, every shovel full of manure you receive, just say to yourself, this is going to be good fruit. And thank God for His grace. Above all else, don't miss the Messiah's work in your life just because it hurts and doesn't smell good. As we go to the table tonight, I can't help but think about what grace looked like to Jesus. It looked like a cross. When He gathered with His disciples, He, he described it by breaking bread. This is the path we follow.